Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 117 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And before we introduce this week's guest, what we have to do is give a shout out to Angie Coffey Owen, who's become a Patreon supporter. And as well as getting her name mentioned at the top of the show today, she also gets early access to the podcast and can join us on our accountability calls once a month. That's fabulous, Louise, isn't it? Yes. So welcome, Angie. Thank you for your support. It's much appreciated. So this week's guest is Katie Caldesi. And you and I saw Katie and Giancarlo at the PHC conference in 2019. Yeah, it was really great to obviously be introduced and to to hear their story and what an inspiring story it is. Yeah. And I actually approached Katie at that time to come on the podcast uh, and I had quite a long, long list and there were all bits of paper all over the place. And, and then I lost it. And so I saw Katie again at the PHC conference in May. And as soon as I saw her, I thought I've got I'm sort of made a beeline. She was always busy. There was always people talking to her. But I knew I had in my head, I've got to go and get her details again and get her on the podcast. So here she is. Well, you know, it's a bit of a sliding doors moment, wasn't it? Because, you know, when we went to the PHC conference in 2019, I mean, you know, we'd been talking and conceptualizing and thinking about, you know, launching the podcast. But, you know, you know, some things you just have to wait, wait your moment. And obviously this year was a great opportunity to, as you said, make a beeline and, you know, firm up the invitation. And yes, we were able to get Katie on the podcast for this episode. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a bit more about Katie? Sure. Um, so Katie and her husband, as you mentioned, Giancarlo, first came to the public attention when they featured in the BBC Two series returned to Tuscany in 2006. The series, which was broadcast worldwide, followed the pair as they set up and launched a residential cookery school in Tuscany. That sounds absolutely delightful. The show climaxed, how romantic, with them getting married in a dream-like Tuscan wedding. That sounds awesome. And since then, they've been frequent visitors to our screens, appearing as guests on an array of foodie programs, my favourite type of genre, BBC One MasterChef, The Saturday Kitchen and The Sunday Brunch. So both Katie and Giancarlo are business partners in the Caldesi Group of Restaurants and Cookery Schools around Marlebone and Spray in Berkshire. Their school has launched, was launched in Marlebone in 2005. And this year they celebrated 15 years in 
um, with their restaurant in Bray and 20 years in Marlborough there. So Katie started researching the low-carb diet when her husband was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and gluten intolerance through nutritionist Jenny Phillips. So then she became aware of the work, as we many people do, were inspired by Dr. David Unwin, the low-carb GP. And so following the advice of both Jenny Phillips and David that began to develop their low-carb dishes and soon the whole family had cut right back on carbohydrates. So and they did see immediate benefits and obviously, you know, lots of energy and weight loss, which was really great um, with headaches lessened and skin improvement. And Giancarlo, more importantly, lost weight and has led to his diabetes going into remission. Isn't that great news? Mm. We have more of Katie and her family's story on the show notes as well as um, obviously in the podcast listing so you'll be able to read her story there which includes her publication list yeah absolutely so should we go over to the interview yeah that's Hugh from Katie and her story welcome Katie to the fabulously keto podcast it's fabulous to have you with us today thank you very much it's great to be here we always start in asking where in the world are you i am in gerrard's cross which is just west of london Mm -hmm. is that buckinghamshire yes it is buckinghamshire yes good and then we normally ask how did you come to low carb and what's your journey there but i think you've got a really interesting story of what was going on before that so why don't you share with us the bit before all the things you've been doing before before we get to the low carb bit okay um I trained as a theatre designer and I designed costumes and sets for theatre, film and television. And I did that for around 10 years. And um, one of the things I trained to do in that time was to paint frescoes with wet lime plaster. So imagine if you go into those beautiful old Italian churches and you see those frescoes that have been there for centuries. That's what I used to do. Um, not just that, but that was one of the things I did. And um, at one point in my career as a, a painter and costume and set designer, I got a phone call from an Italian man saying, I have a wine bar. I have a wine bar in the city. It needs a, a fresco. It needs a mural. Come and meet me and do this um, mural for me. So I went up to London with my great big portfolio of work and um met this man and shook his hand. And um, he was an attractive Italian man in his 40s. And um, he apparently shook my hand and decided there and then that he was going to marry me and have two children with me. (laughs) I didn't realize that. I was just going for a painting job. Um, (laughs) But he did make an impression upon me. And... um, Months later, after I'd been working for him, um, we kind of got together. And um, then one of the, he he loved the whole art and the fresco thing. And he said, you know, it wasn't just you I fell for, it was the art. And I said, well, funny that, because it wasn't just you I fell for, it was your food. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) we had things in common and he used to cook um, pasta for us and there were quite a lot of us working on what was a building site really in this in this wine bar in the city of London and um, every day he would cook up this beautiful pasta for us 
which I can still remember it now, had little tomatoes in it and some chili and some buffalo mozzarella and some basil. And we would all sit down in our painter's overalls and all the chippies would sit down, the sparks, everybody, and we'd sit and eat these this beautiful food. And until then, I thought kind of going out for a Bella Pasta was quite nice, which is a chain restaurant for those of you that don't know it. Um, and then I had this real Italian food and it was a sort of light bulb moment thinking, my goodness, the flavors are just so delicious. And so um, I kept on painting for a couple of years, but actually my heart always lay in food and I did food. I did home economics as A-level as well as art. And um, so I did cook a lot at home, but then I took every opportunity to go and be in the kitchen in the restaurants when they were all up and running. He had two at the time um, and learn from the chefs and learn from him, learn from Giancarlo and um, who I later married, by the way, this strange Italian man. And I did have two children with him. So his premonition was exactly right. And we've been together 25 years now. So I used to scrub all the paint off my fingers and then put, get out of my painter's overalls, those white overalls. And I used to put chef's whites on and go down in the kitchen in the evening, way before having children and, and watch the chefs at work. And then eventually I started working in the kitchens and I was on veg prep and, um, and I did patisserie for a while in the kitchen as well and absolutely loved it and then gave up painting and then started running the restaurants with him. So I've been immersed in Italian food for 25 years now and um, and loved every moment of it. And then he was asked to write a book about his mother's recipes. And um, he he can't do that. He's, he's dyslexic and also English is not his first language. So although he's completely fluent, he, he would find it really hard to write in English. Mm. So that became my job to write his mother's recipes. And um, we went to Tuscany together and um, his mother, unfortunately, was not well at all and sort of semi in a coma, which was really sad. So I never properly met her. Um, nor could I ask her about her recipe, but going to Tuscany reminded him of everything that she used to cook. And then the, the book was called Italian Mama's Kitchen, and it had a hundred apiece. And it was a pretty awful book looking back at it because I had no idea how to write a book. Shall I just tell my noisy family to be quiet? Can you hear them in the background? No, we just had a little blip with the Zoom, but no, we can't hear them. You can't. Okay. Um, yeah. So, th so that was that was the first book, and um, then um, and I, I loved writing it. I just didn't know how to write a recipe. I didn't know, um, you know, how to how to make the instructions clear. I tried really hard, but I know that I didn't get it all right at all. And so, seventeen books later, I look back at the first one and think, "Oh my god! I, you know, I should have said this. I should have said that, and I should have said what size cake tin." I should have explained everything more clearly. Um, but it was a great kind of in at the deep end and write a book when you've never done anything um, to do with English past English O-level. Mm. And suddenly I was an author. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I had the I had the first when, when you hand the manuscript in, you know, at, on the publishing on, on the day that they want it. Sorry. And I, and I managed to do it on time and it came back to me pretty quickly. And in those days, it wasn't electronic. So I physically handed a, the script in, which I must have typed 
and printed out. So it did exist as a file, but I had to hand it in on paper. And it came back to me on paper with red marks on it from the editor. And one of the first marks it said, and she'd crossed out a whole section that I'd written, it said, grammar awful. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I felt so humbled and so sort of not humbled so you know awful humble I suppose and just um oh you know I can't do this I'm not an author and I don't know what I'm doing and I don't understand grammar or anything else but you know somehow we produced a book and then miraculously I got asked to write another one and then another one and another one so I I, I like to think I've improved over the years. So how many books did you write before you came to low carb? Nine I think. Wow. Maybe more than that yeah because I've written five low-carb books now, and I've written 17 books in total, so 12, oh. 12 books, yeah, yeah. before that. Yeah. And, so, and so from the restaurants, that grew as well, didn't it, the, the business? Yes, yes, and then um, Giancarlo had this idea one Sunday to teach a family how to make fresh pasta, and, and that was probably 22 years ago. And so this family turned up on a Sunday and we taught them how to make fresh pasta and thought, and they really loved it. And we really loved it. And we thought, oh, this is a good idea. Why don't we do a bit more of this and teach people the skills? And by that time, I was recipe writing and and I had learned everything, you know, as an English woman, an English artist who knew nothing about Italian food. I had learned to make fresh pasta and I've been working in the kitchen. So I thought if I can do it, other people can do it. And I've always thought that. I've always thought if I can do it, other people can. So teaching was was quite a natural progression, I suppose. And then we had this idea of opening a cookery school, um, which we did. And um, so we were teaching out of the kitchens of of our restaurant. So we began there, first of all, before we had um, a premises to do it in, Um, which was fine. But then when it got busy during a service, You've got all the chefs trying to get access to the oven and then you've got a group of people and then the chefs might accidentally swear every now and again. (laughs) And had they done that in Italian, we might have got away with it, but they didn't for some reason. And it's all, you know, the heat of the kitchen and the passion of the kitchen. And um, sometimes it was great fun, but other times we just felt we were in the way. So then we found a premises where we could just have a cookery school and nobody swore. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, yeah, I certainly could imagine an Italian Gordon Ramsay is not a really good look. You know, well, well not a good maybe. look. No, and when you're in the way, and you know, and trying to teach people how to cook, and and you've got a sort of fiery Italian chef also trying to do a service, it wasn't a great idea. We did try and stagger it, but it didn't always work out correctly. So, so then we opened a school. Is that still going? Is this, yes. is this still? Yeah, great. Yeah, La, La Cucina Caldesi, we um, have been there in that building about, well, since 2005 we opened. Yeah, so a long time. Yeah. And where is it? If people are in Marylebone. In Marylebone. Now we also teach out of our home. So I teach from my kitchen here in Gerrard's Cross, and then Giancarlo teaches from the restaurant in Bray. But we have a separate room in Bray where where we do teaching so, yes we've expanded the school and the and the restaurants so then come on to how how did you come across low carb well probably a bit too much pasta if I'm honest <laughs> um, as mu- as much as I love pasta one can eat too much of it as you know um, and so Giancarlo 
it came from this farming community and I've just been writing about this actually and um, he came from a, a small farm in Tuscany and they didn't have much money at all I mean they didn't to be honest need much money because they grew everything so they grew everything and they were probably about 90% self-sufficient but of course if you wanted to buy a tractor or you wanted to buy a pair of shoes that was when you needed the money but you didn't need the money for shopping and food because they had everything um so but money was you know very tight and if they could sell something like eggs they would sell the eggs rather than eat the eggs so it was all about you know eating and then his mother made pasta he would have had a small portion of it because she would have had to use eggs to make her pasta um or she would make egg-free pasta but she would spend all morning making the pasta. She probably didn't pile it on the plates. You know, you'd have a small portion of it. And then they'd all, he would run to school five kilometers or something, or they, he would work on the farm. He would have to look after the cows. They were really active because they, they had this small holding. Um, so then when he came to London and opened this restaurant in the West End, and he was there during the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, when cash was king and he would get tips he was a waiter he was he was a waiter in the rome hilton and he got transferred to the london hilton in park lane that's how he arrived in this country mm. and so suddenly he had money wow you know he'd never had money before he had real proper you could feel the notes in the wad of cash in his pocket and what he did to kfc he thought this was just amazing to go to pay and spend this cash because he'd never had money before. And then he would eat pasta. And, he, and when he had a restaurant, he would eat loads of pasta because he damn well could from a life of, you know, having small amounts of food and no money. He could eat. Oh, my God, he could eat. So he could eat pasta at lunchtime in huge portions. He could eat pasta in the evening. He could go and buy pastries. He could have whatever he wanted, and he did. And he grew and grew and grew from this little thin stick of a boy that came over from Tuscany to this obese man. And, and I met him at that point. So I'm not portraying a very good picture of him, but somehow he was very attractive, <laughs> despite being <laughs> four stone heavier than he is at the moment. And um, still full of life, but yes, eating too much pasta really and then um he he got blurred vision and he used to be asleep all the time he didn't have much energy and um so it was the blurred vision really that made him go to the doctors and because he was driving and he lost his vision and he managed to pull over and his vision came back and he managed to get home but it gave him such a shock he said i think i need to see a doctor and i said yes and it was Saturday so NHS doctors not open couldn't have had an appointment till the following weekend but he was scared so he actually took himself to a private doctor and there's one near here and it was 85 pounds for half an hour and it was the best 85 pounds he ever spent because in that half an hour the doctor had time in half an hour to go through all the symptoms and he was classic type 2 diabetes the weight around the middle the tiredness the constant thirst hangry mood all those symptoms that we knew nothing about and um so the doctor gave him a, a test and then called a few days later and said you have type 2 diabetes 
which we didn't take very seriously and we should have done really. And it was really stupid of us not to take it seriously. And we went to see a dietitian and the dietitian said, cut the sugar in your coffee and have smaller portions of pasta. So he did that and his HbA1c went much worse. So he, he got worse into the diabetes spectrum. And um, then I gave up gluten because I had IBS and I was also overweight. And um, I gave up gluten because I'd read that book, Wheat Belly. And Giancarlo said, well, I'll give it up as well and see what, ha see what happens. So after about three or four days, I felt no different whatsoever. And I said, well, this is a load of rubbish, isn't it? You know, I don't feel any different at all. And he said, oh, I feel completely different. I feel completely different. I feel clear in the head. He had inflammation everywhere, all over his body, not, you know, as well as inside his body that we didn't know about. He had arthritis. He, his knuckles were quite fat on his hands. And within three or four days, the, the swelling in his knuckles went down so oh. much so that his wedding ring fell off. Um, so he says, no, no, I believe him. Um, <laughs> and um, then he um, and so he felt amazingly better. So then we found a local nutritionist called Jenny Phillips, who I now write the books with. And she's one of my best friends. But I didn't know her in those days. We were put in touch with her. We went to see her. She um, suggested he got tested for gluten intolerance and it came back with all the markers for practically being celiac. Ah. So he was badly gluten intolerant and his diabetes was by no means under control. So then he gave up the gluten, which meant he had to give up the pasta and he hated gluten free pasta. So now he's got used to it. So he has it occasionally, but in those days he hated it. So suddenly he was going from this high carb diet to low carb, but we didn't know it was low carb. We didn't, we'd never heard that phrase. We were just cutting out the gluten. And then because of the diabetes, we were cutting out the sugar. So if you think about it, we were cutting out sugar and starch, classic low carb, but didn't, that wasn't why we were doing it. So we, we inadvertently followed a low carb diet. And then and felt so much better. And then Jenny said, oh, you might want to look at, you know, these low carb food groups and low carb food sites rather. And um, have you heard of Dr. David Unwin? And of course I hadn't um, because that wasn't my world. My world was Italian food and eating rather a lot of it. <laughs> um, so then. So then I, um, I had, you know, I, I did all my research and I kept sort of finding out this, oh my goodness, there's this whole world of low carbers and we are those people. That is my tribe. And I hadn't realized. Mm. Um, so it was fantastic. It was, you know, absolutely life-changing, absolutely life-changing. Um, so when, when was it that, uh, Giancarlo had that blurry vision on the motorway? About 2011, I think. And so, and then yeah. how did you, when did you come across David Unwin and stuff? And that the well, not long. No, no, actually we did. Sorry. So, so when he had the blurry vision, um, I think it was around 2011 and then he was diagnosed with type two diabetes, but we didn't do anything about it for about 18 months and it got worse. Then we had this gluten thing. Thank goodness. I read that book, Wheat Belly. And then then as soon as we met Jenny Phillips, it all came together. So I suppose around 2013, 2014 would have been when we went low carb and his HbA1c dropped to normal levels. So quite quickly, once we'd 
worked it all out. And once the gluten thing um, came in, he, he quite quickly um, went you know, back to normal levels and felt so much better, so much better. Mm. Um, and I think it was the feeling better that got him through it. Because when you think he was, a, he was an Italian chef who made pasta, taught pasta making, I mean, we sell all sorts of other things in our restaurants. It's not just pasta, but it's, we've, we've never done pizza, really. Dabbled a bit with pizza, but we're not that kind of restaurant. It's, it's a pasta as a first course and then calves, liver, steak, chicken, guinea fowl, all sorts of things. It's that kind of classic Italian restaurant. And, and it was pasta that people wanted to learn. And, you know, we all loved to eat it. So, I, so that's why I keep mentioning pasta. So it put, and because it wasn't the other things that we were cooking that was causing the trouble, it was the pasta that was causing the problem. Not just the carbs, but the gluten. Um, what was the delay yeah. like, you know, from 2011? And you said, look, you know, it took about 18 months before mm-hmm. things were going, you know, getting, getting worse, from not, not better. You'd, you'd mentioned about seeing a dietitian. And that was a mm. recommendation to sort of cut out the sugar, but not yet the the gluten and the no. wheat. No. But there was this window where you'd had the diagnosis. Yeah. That and you had an actually Yeah, and it got worse. We, tell us a bit about that space because that's a really interesting thing to sort of, you know, was it just business um, as usual? Head in the sand, not gonna happen. Yes. And I suppose because we think he'd been diabetic for about 10 years before we realized you know, a long time, because when he felt better, we realized how he, he wasn't, you know, how ill he was before. But because it came on slowly and Giancarlo is 11 years older than me, we just thought that's what happens when you get middle aged. So we, I suppose, yeah, in a nutshell, we didn't take the diabetes seriously. We didn't think it was something to be worried about, particularly. It was just one of those things you were told that's, you know, like your blood group, that's it you've got diabetes, but I don't think anyone said, you know, you, you may have your foot amputated if you don't do something about this. If someone had said that, I think we would have taken it a lot more seriously. You know, it, it's going to get worse. No one suggested metformin for him, which was quite surprising because he did have it quite badly. But I think that it went wrong because he went to see a private doctor. So he slipped through the net of the NHS because it was a while till he saw his NH doctor, NHS doctor. And so somehow we saw the dietitian, but no one was really monitoring him. But that's not the fault of the NHS. That's just because we went in a different route. And I think it took a while to kind of get all the notes together and for him to be registered as diabetic. Um, And then, but I don't think that the, the dietitian gave us the right advice at all or made it really clear that he shouldn't be eating pasta at all. You know, had she said you should go on a low carb diet, you'll feel so much better and reverse your condition. We probably would have done it. But of course, nobody mentioned that to us. So he just went on eating pasta, getting more and more sick. And and did cut the sugar down a bit in his cappuccino, but he shouldn't be having loads of cappuccino either. So nobody would have said that to him. So there were loads of things we could have helped ourselves more and we could have been helped more. So two things really but it was really the, the the jenny saying yes you are gluten intolerant and me reading that book that that saved his life so he was he was really distressed because he loved sugar and so he had to give up sugar and then he was told he had to give up pasta so he it was awful for him really awful yeah but then 
that's what saved his life. So yeah. nowadays, can can he have any pasta? Or yes, because I think you know we we're all so different, aren't we? And um, he can he's quite good at controlling what he eats. So he. We you know we've had lots of discussions with the Unwins, and Jen or Jen Unwin always says that he, you know he was clearly a sugar addict, and I, I think he is, he was, and he is. But he can control it; he's quite good, really. And we don't have biscuits in the house and stuff, so that helps. But um, because he felt so much better, he doesn't want to go back to the way he was. So he's quite self-controlled, um, and so he he can. I can't remember what the question was now. What did you ask me? So um, if he can have any pasta. Oh, so yes, can you have pasta? Bread? Yes. So, so for Giancarlo, he feels that he, he doesn't like to be imprisoned in any way. He can't bear that. He's a real kind of wild child in a way. So if you said you can't have this and you can't have that and you must eat this and you must eat that, he would go crazy. However, he, can, he goes without breakfast. He often goes without lunch. So he does intermittent fasting. Um, and he doesn't have that hunger that he did in the past, but he likes to have his treats. So occasionally he'll have a bit of dark chocolate, but that would have been a Kit Kat years ago. And um, and now it's 90 percent dark chocolate. But he needs his little fixes, his little treats. And he works really hard. He's 70 years old and he probably does a kind of 60 hour week still. So. I'm not going to say you can't have this and you can't have that. And then about twice a week, he has gluten free pasta with a protein rich sauce with ragu. And he seems to manage to keep the weight off, keep the diabetes at bay. His HbA1c is still good. We test it regularly. Um, and so that works for him having his treats. And he's he always says that to people. I have to have my treats. Otherwise, I couldn't sustain this lifestyle. Yeah, I like that as well. Yeah, I heard you say that on a podcast the other day and I thought, yeah, that's that's Giancarlo. And I think I would be like that as well. So we're going to Paris for a week next week and I'm going to have a buttery croissant. Um, <laughs> I may only have one, but I'm going to really enjoy it. Um, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad you say that because there's there's things like, um, yeah, so I'm obviously the, the abstainer and Jackie's the moderator, so I'm the, I'm the yin to her yang. But You're the what, sorry? I'm the yin to her yang. Okay. Yin and yang. So, um, but if I'm going to go all the way to Paris, you know, I, I do want to live. Like I do want to try that that buttery croissant, you know, because it's obviously, it, it is that treat. It is that experience. Mm. The only problem that I had was when I was in, um, went to Bruges, you know, to the, the Christmas markets and being a Belgian you know, wanting to have Belgian chocolate or, you know, a Belgian waffle, that sort of sent me in a bit of a spiral. So mm. I do know being the abstainer that, you know, when I, once I open that door, I, I'm going to be driving a lorry through it, you know. like really? it's, just, yeah. it's just an invitation. So, you know, I really admire yeah. people that can moderate that. Yeah. It just comes down to the individual, doesn't it? He's lucky that he can do that. Um and and when you think he's surrounded by pasta every day at the restaurants, but and but he's learnt to live with it, and he he is very self controlled. He is in lots of ways. You know, he he's he's tireless in his work and um and very strong. But 
I'm not going to have it because I don't want to be sick again. Yeah. And what annoys me is that we lost 10 years. And I think that annoys him as well. He lost 10 years. You know, he's still alive. Amazing. But he could have had a much better time. And when our boys were young, he was asleep on the sofa. So I'd go and take them down to the sea and he would stay in the car and have a nap. And when we, this is incredible as well. This is how often he would sleep and how easily he would sleep. And we just said, he's an Italian middle-aged man. He needs his siesta, you know, and sort of laugh it off. But he spent hours of the day asleep and then working and then sleeping and working and sleeping. And then when we went to discover the sex of our second child, Flavio, um, I was, what? when do you do that? When you're three, six months pregnant or whatever, we went to um, the hospital and we had this appointment and I was so excited. Like, oh my God, maybe they're going to tell me I'm going to have a girl. Am I going to have a boy? I hope everything's going to be all right. I was so excited. And we went together and we were holding hands. We went into this small dark room and I lay down on the on the thing and they did the scan over my belly. And suddenly there was this noise from the corner of the room, this snoring noise. And I looked over, I could not believe it. He'd fallen asleep when we're just about to find out the sex of our child. (laughs) And the radiographer said, in all the years of doing this job, I've never had a father fall asleep at this moment. And I said, I'm so sorry. And I gave him those enormous nudges. Wake up, how can you be asleep now? We're just about to find out if we're going to have a daughter or a son and if the baby's okay. Yeah, he'd nodded off. And so, you know, uh, had I known about classic type 2 diabetes symptoms, I could have said, you know, you're overweight, you're always asleep, you're always hangry. And, you know, doesn't we could always, have had... Doesn't always work though, Katie. Doesn't I have, no. I have one in the other room who just takes no notice whatsoever. Oh. So I think it just depends on the person and how mm. how willing they are to live, I think. How much? Yeah. How much they want to invest in living? Yeah, yeah. So with with the yeah. pasta, I'm, I'm going back to the pasta. Does, yes, does he yeah. make his own gluten free pasta? No, we've tried, and it's it's just um, it's okay. It's okay. It doesn't it doesn't satisfy him in the way that real pasta does. Um, so it does it's difficult so no he doesn't make his own gluten-free pasta what i try and do and what i'm really happy doing is making ribbons of um cabbage so i get a savoy or a sweetheart cabbage and finally not not so finely chop it but i chop it into the exact width of tagliatelle or fettuccine or pappardelle and then I put that into a saucepan with a splash of water and a knob of butter and pepper and salt. And I put the lid on and I boil it for a, not boil it, but cook it because it's only in a splash of water. So it's sort of almost steam fries, if you like. And I cook it for about six minutes. And then I toss that into a bowl and I have a pasta sauce on cabbage. And if Giancarlo's wanting his gluten-free pasta because for him it's all about the bite and the chewiness of pasta so you're never going to get that from cabbage it's an instant if you think of biting through cabbage you instantly bite through with pasta you chew a bit so he's never going to completely want my cabbage but I can reduce his portion of pasta and put the cabbage through it and then he's happy so we'll sometimes do that and now we offer the um, alternative of cabbage ribbons in our restaurants, which David Unwin got us to do. He said, you need this on the menu. 
And we said, well, David, that's all very well, but I don't think people are going to come to an Italian restaurant and say, I want your classic Tuscan beef ragu on cabbage. But, you know, they do. There are enough of us people, us mad people out there, us low carbers that do want that. So we <laughs> offer cabbage ribbons in our restaurant. We must be the only Italian restaurant that does that. But Yeah. Which is great because there aren't many places that you can go to where you are catered for. So yeah. I- Right. I mean, I'm standing here now thinking, so in the past I've got about coming and having a low carb meal, but now I'm thinking I might come and have some pasta. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're supposed to have coaxed you into the the pasta cabbage ribbons. (laughs) So what is the pasta is good. But there are other alternatives. Um, I know that there are different recipes that sort of do like an egg, like an egg ribbon, um, yeah. you know where people do do that into as you said you know the that sort of that shape the um yeah. the fettuccine sort of thing tagatelli yes. yeah but there's also there's another recipe that has a sort of a glue um they try and glue glue together something um i'll have to sort of the zoodles um, yes so there are there are other other yeah. recipes that that shirataki do, do shirataki yeah. noodles yeah yeah noodles it's but you give that to an Italian and they just, you know, they just can't accept it. It's not so the same. It's not the same, no. And it's got a different rubbery texture it to does. fresh yeah, pasta. It does, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I quite like them, but I like them in an Asian dish, dish, you know, because then I think it works. And having been to Japan and eaten them in Japan, I, I think that that's normal. So that's lovely in Japanese food, lovely. Um, to have those noodles say in one of my recipes it's a it's a quick one with tuna you open a can of tuna and you mix it with those noodles and you put coriander and chili with it and a bit of soy sauce and it's delicious but it's the noodles fit the asian dish whereas mm-hmm. if you try to put those noodles with a carbonara it just feels wrong somehow oh but, yeah i can imagine but, that but but what yeah. i don't think is wrong is something like the cabbage or i've done an asparagus carbonara so the carbonara works with certain vegetables, I think. And that's yeah. that's really mm. nice. Transglutamase is what you were thinking of. That's what I was thinking of. The 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 um the one that Carl and Richard well, you know, Carl's noodles was was one where they were using um the meat sort of glue to to do a a a noodle substitute. But it, mm. it's really interesting because part of me thinks, well, as we transition to a new lifestyle, we do, mm. you know, those comfort foods that we substitute. So the zoodles for the noodles and we do the rice, we do the collie rice, those sorts of things. Yeah. Gets us over the line until such time as we get to a a point where we go, yeah, I just, yeah, I don't miss bread or I don't miss pasta or I don't mm. miss, you know, whatever it was that was your, your food, potato. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we get to a point where we can, you know, we can just sort of adapt and modify to such a point where we just, yeah, we just don't don't miss it. So yeah. is that where, where Gene Color was now? Yes. Yeah. But he would see if you said he could never have pasta again, he he wouldn't he would just go mad, I think. So he he now has his one or two bowls a week, but it's a smaller portion, and then sometimes with the cabbage. Um and he's he's happier he's happy with that, but he wouldn't want to have it. He wouldn't want to be told he could never have it. Mm. 
but I'm wearing one of these blood um, continuous glucose monitors now in my arm because I've been doing some research for the, the book I'm working on at the moment. And so I, and you know, I know that's just me, so you can't say it applies to everybody, but I had a bowl of spelt pasta and I watched my blood glucose come up and come down again. And I have fairly good control. So I can see it spikes and comes down quickly. And then I had a bowl of um, this spelt pasta. It was wholemeal, freshly made spelt pasta with cabbage in it. And you can see I had much less of a rise just because I'm not having the carbs of the pasta. And then I had a bowl of just the cabbage on its own. And then I only had a tiny bit of a rise with the cabbage on its own. So at, when you were talking about transitioning, I think that is perfect because then if you've got a stubborn man in the other room, um, maybe, you know, maybe then you, they don't want to be told they can't have something, but, but they might accept the fact that they may be able to have it, but have less of it and more of something else. So I think, I think that's, better than saying you've got to give this up now but and and I found when um we also did this thing uh, around the time that Giancarlo had diabetes um I started getting interested in the way that he used to live his life on this small holding without any money but he's got very fond memories of that time even though they were horribly poor and sometimes he would go to bed hungry which he says is just awful it's just awful as a child to have this gnawing hunger in your belly when you're trying to go to sleep so that's how poor they were but those days were few most of the time you know they they were fed and they had they had food but I became fascinated in the life of these people and, I, and it's something I want to write more about and I want to study um, because I think there's a lot to learn from those kitchens and how they ate seasonally and how they batch cooked and how they made good food out of no money. Um, but they were, to be fair, they had access to good food because they were growing it. Um, anyway, aside from that, um, ah, I guess lost what I was going to say again now about these people in Italy and cooking. It It'll come me, back to me. It reminds me of the, obviously, the story of the Piopi, the Piopi people, where yes. obviously, you know, how... It, well, Asima Hotra sort of was replicating yeah. replicating the Piopi diet, but that was yeah. where we had Ansel Keys go. Obviously, he was studied that as part of his seven country study. So, yeah. and you can understand that that Mediterranean lifestyle is it is sun, it's hard work, it's you know basic you know first principle cooking. It's really about the socialness of the food mm. preparation and the food. Mm. Um, you know, the actual sort of community as well, the community yeah. connection, that that sort of simplistic, rustic peasant lifestyle has yeah. a lot to offer. You know, we've complicated yeah. things, as you said, Kit Kats and KFCs. So, yes. Uh, yeah. Stress. And, and, and I think it, the week. I know, I know. And they, they would, I mean, his father probably would have worked long periods of time, but when it was dark, he didn't. So he worked mm. less in winter and more in summer. Um and then they, and it was a really good community feel. And they had two families, if not three families, living together in one house because mm. his father's brother was there with his family. And then they took in two um, girls who had been orphaned. 
and they were brought up in the family. So the, the mum had a lot of people to cook for, but she cooked with the other women and they would all prepare the food together and they would all eat together and they wouldn't have had a television. So there was lots of jollity over meals as well. And his father made his own wine, natural wine. So yeah, it wasn't all bad at all. And I think there's a lot to be learned from those people. And um, I think when we look at the foods that people were eating in those environments, they look at the food and they say, this is the food these people are eating. But what they haven't mentioned is all those other things that you've mentioned. No yeah. TV, working no. hard, out in the sun with, you know, getting the natural light. Yes. Sitting around Vitamin the fire D. in the evening, talking, chatting. So even though it was really hard work, it probably wasn't stressful in the sense that we have stress today. There's yeah whole community uh, around us so there's all things going on that are influencing mm. that lifestyle that is not just the food no it's not no. just the food yeah the togetherness <laughs> but the other... not being lonely Correct. they were never Correct. lonely yeah. no and the other thing don't forget that that sort of that that lifestyle that had to offer was that um you know we've got to be reminded about seasonal you know it's fresh mm. it's obviously organic it's mm. local. It's, you know, that that's the thing because they were eating the seasonal fresh food. Yeah. food. It wasn't actually all of that stuff that we have today where we have strawberries and berries all year round. Yes, yeah. 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 I, exactly. There's a lot to be said about that. Yes, I think so. And it's an area, an area I want to study more and being married to one of these people you know it's it's something I want our boys to know more about it I know where I was going before so because I'm fascinated in these people then um and more or less they're the contadini people so they're the peasant farmers of Italy and and we know contadini folk now who will tell you that they're very proud of it and they'll beat their chest and say you sono contadino you know I'm it's nobody would say that in England I'm a peasant farmer but that's more or less you know I'm a peasant and I'm proud. You wouldn't say that, but that's how they feel about it, you know. And and so there's no, it's not a derogatory term saying you're a contadino. They they are very proud of that. And that's that's the kind of people I want to write about. So anyway, having been fascinated in that lifestyle, when Giancarlo wasn't well and um we were all overweight, and probably looking back at it, our boys were too, actually, which is pretty awful. But then, you know, we've got all this food around us all the time and I thought we ate healthily but as treats I would buy the boys big packets of crisps because they loved crisps and so and I was a mum and I wanted to spoil my boys and I used to make them cake until one day they said I don't know why you keep making it we don't like cake but I thought that's as a mum that's what you had to do you had to have a cake so that when they came home from school they would eat cake and then they said we don't like that but we do like Thai chili sensations <laughs> so I'd go to the shop and I'd say, oh, I'll treat my boys when they come back from school and, you know, I'll show my love through um, crisps. Mm -hmm. And so I'd have crisps out for them or I might have a jam donut or something. And I would show my love through all this terrible, terrible food. And um, I realized this is just all wrong. It's just all wrong. We're all getting sick. We didn't have good skin and Giorgio had to have fillings as a young boy because I gave him too much apple juice, you know, and it, and my dentist told me off, but I'm so glad he did. And he's a, a really good friend now. And he, he showed me the error of my ways. So I was no better than anyone else feeding them all this rubbish. 
And so I decided for a month we were going to go back to how Giancarlo would have lived at 10 and our boy Flavio was 10. So there's 50 years difference between them. So we were going to go back 50 years. So we didn't use the car very much at all. We walked everywhere. We cycled everywhere. I got rid of all the crisps from the house. I got rid of all the biscuits and the jam donuts and everything. It just went, went in the bin. But I realized I couldn't just have nothing. So when they came home from school, it's like, where are the crisps? So I took them at the weekend. I got rid of the crisp. We went to um, a farm and we picked apples and they had all these different diverse diversity of apples like russets and old worcesters and stuff like that we've got all these different apples it was such fun and it was the price of the apples that's what we paid which was maybe like 10 quid or something so it wasn't nothing it was about 10 pounds worth of apples we had loads of them then I took them to a cheese shop in London and I spent 25 pounds on cheese which sounds like a lot but we came back with all this cheese and it lasted about two weeks this cheese and so that when they came back from school on that first day, when I'd got rid of all the crisps, I put this lovely big wooden shopping board out and I had different cheeses and different apples. And I said, there we are. That's your snack after school. And we and some of the cheese went really well with the apples and some of it was horrible. But we had a discussion about it and it was brilliant fun. And so it cost me 25 pounds to do this, which you might say is not you know acceptable for, for many people. But you contrast that against what we had spent going to Legoland, which for a family of four is really expensive and utter hell, as far <laughs> as I was concerned, because there's nothing nice to eat there and it's loads of plastic everywhere. And the temptation to buy this Lego kit and that Lego kit, and that cost us something like £150 that day out. So in contrast, my £25 day out involved going to a cheese shop and picking apples utter joy and heaven and we ate that food for two weeks and so I saved on crisps so I would recommend anyone who can do that to do that and I know not everyone can but it was it was brilliant for us and so that helped get us into this more natural way of living and then we have an oak tree in the garden and we picked up all these acorns and I phoned up a local pig farm and I said would you like my acorns and they said, oh, yes, please. So we took around these sacks of acorns. So it was physical work to get the acorns into the sack. And they gave us a, a pork belly in return. Oh, I cooked yeah. a pork belly. Yeah. Absolutely delicious in return for the acorns. It cost me nothing. And then I did a swap with some other people who have a local shooting estate near here. And they have so many birds at the end of it. They gave me some birds. And in return, they came for a cooking lesson with me. So I bartered my skills of teaching people how to cook for free birds. They were still in the feather. So we had to sit around and I made the boys pluck their supper. So we plucked the feathers off the birds and we cooked the birds. Wow. And um, again, we had free supper. So it was brilliant. We did all of this within the month. We lived in the way that Giancarlo's family would. And it was a great, um, you know, we don't do all of those things now, but we do some of those things now. Yeah, great experiment. So what benefits have you noticed from going low carb? Um, I've kept a stone off since I've gone low carb. I was always about to stone over and I've been able to lose that and keep that off. So I'm delighted by that. More energy. Um, 
I used to have, I used to wake up starving hungry in the morning. It would be the thing that would get me out of bed seven o'clock in the morning, straight downstairs. I felt faint if I didn't eat. And I had a bowl of oats, milk, um, yogurt, probably low fat yogurt and honey and a banana. So I was having all those forms of sugar without realizing starving hungry again by 11 o'clock in the morning, really sleepy, got no energy, having a piece of bread and marmalade and a cup of coffee at 11 o'clock to get me through to lunch, ravenous by lunchtime, having a bowl of pasta, still ravenous in the afternoon, more toast in the afternoon to keep me going through till dinner. And yeah, and suddenly I've got energy and I can Mm -hmm. go for hours without eating and um, I feel better. Yeah just feel so much better yeah it's amazing isn't it yeah amazing yes yeah we just need to spread the word don't we and so you mentioned about the five low-carb books um the the recipe books um cookbooks um so do we each of them are they all italian focused or is it not at all no Um, so only four out at the moment the other one i've just finished actually i think it goes to print next week which is very exciting Um, And that's going to be Italian, low carb Italian, the next one. So before that, I've written the 30 minute diabetes cookbook, which is recipes from all over the world. And I've written um, low carb weight loss cookbook and the reverse your diabetes cookbook and the diabetes weight loss cookbook. So they all sound very similar to one another, but all the recipes are different. Yeah. So Jackie's showing, showing, showing the, 30 minute one, yes. yeah, yeah, on Zoom here. So, and um, then, yeah. and that's the low carb weight loss cookbook. Yeah. Oh, and it's been signed as well, aren't we lucky? Signed, yeah, by David by the Unwins, yes, yeah, yeah David Owen, Jen, yeah, yes, yeah, cool, yeah. So, no, the recipes are different and they're all recipes from all over the world apart from the one that will come out next March. So, that that's the Italian one, yeah, that's the Italian one, yeah, great, yeah, yeah. And what sort of um. In terms of, you know, this is the legacy now. So this is this new chapter for um, for yourselves is really, you know, how do we spread the message about, you know, the food is the medicine, the food is the way, you know, the food got us into this problem and this is the way yeah. that we're going to be engineering our way out of obviously, you know, metabolic problems, metabolic yes. disease of which... Um, diabetes is obviously one of the most significant impactors for that. And mm. food is, you know, food education, what you're doing, you know, and really you and Jean Carlo should be proud of, you know, what what you're doing in terms of the future legacy to, to educate and, and address some. Um, yes, and, and I think we're both very self-critical people, but um, so we always want to do more. We, you know, we'd love to have a program on television, but I don't know that that will ever happen. But we, we always sort of think we haven't done enough. We haven't done enough. It, it needs to be bigger. It needs to be louder, um, shouted louder, our message. Um, but then every now and again, I get something sent to me through Instagram or Facebook or something saying, I bought your book a year ago and my husband's HbA1c are now down to a normal level. I'm just writing to say thank you. And then that's, you know, I really love those messages. I really love those messages because half the time I'm sitting in isolation at this computer writing away 
hoping it does some good but I have no idea you know and I think will will they like that recipe will people do that will they like this recipe will they prefer that recipe so it's great to have feedback and and fantastic to know that we're making a difference to you know at least some people's lives so um Mm. but yes it would be nice to to shout louder I suppose but I think you know what what we're trying to do or you know in terms of education you know, but one thing is to sort of get the message out there. But the thing where you're, you know, certainly the the cookbooks is the instructions. It's it's the that part of the missing puzzle. Yeah, we can sort of lead the horse to water, but if we don't yeah. tell the horse how to drink or what yeah. to drink, or you know, part of that is really you know the skill and starting as you as you've done you know you're starting with families and starting with you know trying to engineer the right foods and making it less challenging you know because those substitution things is really hard you know because people do miss you know they're fond of these sorts of foods and trying to make it quick accessible tasty yeah you know that's, that's really the key the key things there Yes, exactly. And and I think that you can't just take something away. You have to, particularly with children, and I didn't want to talk about diet with children. I certainly didn't want to mention that they may have been a bit overweight. I didn't want to say that to two young boys. So it was, and I didn't want to go on about, you know, daddy and I've got to lose weight. So I, I didn't want to say any of those things. I just wanted to replace the bad food with good food. And, and I think that is really key and it, and it works for Giancarlo as well because of having his sweet tooth if there was nothing in the house whatsoever he would probably even take himself off to a garage and go and buy something bad again whereas he says if you can make me these little chocolate pots that are in one of the books and and, and the portion size of the desserts is tiny I mean we literally have these little shot glasses and I collect them from boot sales and charity shops and old wine glasses that were so tiny or liqueur glasses so I put little portions of pudding in those and then he sat that satiates him he's fine with that Mm. but he doesn't want to have nothing so it's better to have something good ready and in the fridge um, Mm. for when he comes in late after work he might not come back till midnight but he's hungry and he wants to sit down and watch the footy with a little treat (laughs) And it works. It works mm. for him. What can I say? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think That's those little pud- those little puddings are nice, aren't they? Just that nice little bit of you know yeah. luxurious mouthfeel of that dark yeah. chocolate, you know, and the double cream sort of mousse. Yeah. Just yeah, yeah. Yum. And I think it's um, uh, I once heard someone saying that why why do we always have room for a pudding at the end of a meal? And I heard this doctor explain it, that we're hardwired to find um, different tastes because otherwise, as hunter-gatherers, we'd go and kill a bison and we'd just always eat bison. You'd just have bison date for supper, breakfast, lunch, the next day, leftovers. Guess what we've got? Bison. So you just go on eating bison, but it wouldn't give you all the nutrition that you needed. So we're hardwired to go and find different taste sensations because that would ensure diversity in our diet health for us, health for our microbiome. So 
um, in order to do that, we seek out different things like, oh, you know, I just really don't fancy bison today. I'm going to go and find a bush which grows raspberries or something, or I'm going to go and find something else. So until you've satiated all of those needs that were hardwired to, to want and crave, then you're just going to go on eating more. So sometimes for me, I'm a savory person, but say I've cooked like a big, I don't know, low carb lasagna or something, I could go on eating that low carb lasagna, you know, and you can have too much low carb food, let's face it, you still got to have your portions under control. So rather than have another portion of low carb lasagna and eat two portions of it, if I take it away from the table, and then maybe make coffee or have a little square of dark chocolate, that will stop my craving for more of the savory stuff. So I'm not a sweet tooth person, but I can eat cheese till the cows come home and make more mm. yeah yeah there so are certain works for me yeah there are certain foods that you tend to want to keep eating keep yeah. going back for more and and my one of mine is is bolognese sauce yeah um, and i don't like it very tomatoey because i'm not keen on cooked tomatoes so the way we have it suits me, but I could eat loads of that. And then I don't yeah. feel great in the evening, at, you know, at, at night. I don't feel great. I've eaten too much. Yeah. Just because yeah. that taste thing is sending me back for more. Yeah. I mean, I don't really like doing my tea straight after a meal because I love the lingering flavors in my mouth. You know, it's so mm-hmm. lovely. But some people say if they do their teeth, that's the end of eating for them. Yeah. And I get that yeah. as well. I get that. You know, yeah. say I have had to go out or something i'll quickly do my teeth and they oh yeah i'm not hungry anymore wow because you don't associate a, ma- a flavor of toothpaste with eating mm-hmm. that works so i think there's something to be said for different different foods will just satiate your needs and then you stop stop eating but i think it also if you know yourself i think there, there needs to be knowing yourself and knowing what those sorts of triggers are and mm-hmm. I think that there's there's things there about what are those pathways that are those trigger pathways. And you, you mentioned about um, Dr. Jen Unwin and obviously her her obviously her addiction and yeah. sugar addiction. Um, you know her work and knowing mm-hmm. that our brains are sort of wired differently. And as you mentioned about those sorts of pathways for obviously the, the taste. So, and where, you know, you're mentioning about what those things are that can easily overeat. And there are some things um, I was mentioning about the macadamia nuts are my my little trigger food because oh, okay. they're, they are salty, crunchy, fatty little balls of goodness. That's what I call them, my little balls yeah. of goodness. You know, yeah. they're salty, they're crunchy, they're fatty. Yeah. And they have this sort of, you know, um, they're like a crisp because you just see a, a Pringle, a Pringle crisp because once you yeah. pop, you can't stop. Yes. And I try and sort of do the moderation thing about just measuring out 50 grams so the packet that I have is around about four pounds fifty, and it's two hundred grams. So I try and portion them into say fifty grams. So I know that there's four portions there. So there's things there that that salty, fatty, little crunchy yeah. balls of goodness. But the same sort of if I have a um, a sugary sort of something sugary, but even the dark chocolate, I know that that's self limiting. 
macadamias because they're high fat they're self-limiting as well so i do think yeah. that there it you know you can't necessarily overeat pork belly yeah there's there's limits to to that i could uh, give it a good go though Oh, oh, believe me, I can. I probably can do about two hundred grams. No, maybe yeah. one hundred and eighty grams of of pork belly. Yeah. Um, but certainly with the the macadamia nuts, once I get to, even though I portioned it out fifty grams, I could probably sneak in that second fifty grams. So um, yeah, you know, hundred grams. But it it knowing yourself, knowing what your yeah. triggers are, whether you're a sweet a sweet sugary person or even the savory sugary person, yeah. you know, that there's a savory sugar because you mentioned about cheese. Mm. So there's still still sugar that's a sugar, but in a savory form there as well. So mm. um but anyway, yeah. I think that um we've come to is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like us to cover today? I would always love to know what people want in a cookbook and if and and I do zoom teaching as well and ideas for courses or uh, it's feedback I suppose that's what I really want is feedback I want people to say okay you know like the books but can you do this or or you know this is what's missing from my life this is what I find hard can you help me with this yeah and that would be through your where people can contact you. Is that through yes. your various social so media? Through, would that be the best um, way? Yes, either through the Instagram account, um, Katie Caldesi, or our Facebook Good Kitchen Table. Sorry, thegoodkitchentable.com, um, our Facebook, which is our, our website, but also there's the Facebook community within that. So yeah, either way, ideas um is always is great. Yeah. Brilliant. Is there, are there any other social media streams that you want to mention on the podcast? Um, no, I think that's I think that's it, really. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we'll, we'll include that in, in the show notes. Thank you. So can you leave us with your three top tips? Yes. So um, batch cooking, going back to my lovely peasant farming community in Italy, you know, batch cooking of all those lovely ragus and the meat stews and the hunter's catch and the casseroles. And I can't recommend that enough. And our son's just moved to Paris, which is why we're going there. And the first thing he did um, was go and buy some cheap meat from a butcher's and make himself some stew and divide it into little bags and put it in the freezer. So he's got his um, healthy food. Um, on hand whenever he wants it so I think batch cooking can't recommend that enough Um, my second tip is boiled eggs oh my goodness I don't know where I'd be without boiled eggs so we always have some in the fridge so when we are maybe rushing in from work and wanting something to eat quickly there'll be a boiled egg in the fridge and I crack the shells to stop them having that blue ring around them as soon as I've Boiled them, boil them for seven minutes so they're slightly soft inside, drop them into cold water and then just store them in the fridge. And so we'll cut them open. I can't have eggs without salt. Got to have some salt on the eggs, maybe a bit of mayonnaise, um, maybe a bit of um, Frank's hot sauce that is low in carbs. And it just satisfies and fills you up if you're feeling hungry. So I love my boiled eggs. And I, I suppose want, that. I, I want to ask you a question there. How long can you keep the eggs in the fridge for? About three days because they're cooked and as long as you you get them cold quickly 
chill them right down in cold water and then pop them in the fridge. So we all always know there's boiled eggs in the fridge. And that just comes down to the general tip of be prepared, which the Unwinds told me right from the start, be prepared, be prepared when you go on journeys and everything else, have food that you can take. So my canned sardines would come under that tip of be prepared. So there's batch cooking, be prepared as in boiled eggs. And um, I am a greedy person by nature. I absolutely love food. I love feeding people. I love to eat. I love everything about food. Um, And so don't deny me food. But and I quite like large portions of food. So I will Jenny Phillips and I will load our plate with um, salad ingredients, you know, lots and lots of delicious different types of lettuce leaves, cress, that lovely cheap ingredient cress that we all had as a child that we don't have now. 30p or something for a thing of cress shove that on my plate with my lovely vinaigrette that I make to make a salad or have the salad first or I have loads of cabbage or I had lots of broccoli so we love our veg so therefore it's not that I'm having a small portion of something that's over in two minutes and it's like oh I've eaten my dinner now that's really sad you know I can have a big plate of vegetables that maybe takes me 10-15 minutes to to eat and enjoy. So load your plate with green veg. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Those are my tips. Hope that's okay. Yeah, they're great. Great, great. Yeah. I was just thinking, um, you know, with all the time zone difference, I think, you know, if it wasn't any time like late at night, I'd be going off with inspired by cooking a nice Italian ragu. So, um, yeah. yeah, so thank you for, you know, thank you and Giancarlo for obviously your, you know, your future legacy of, you know, what you're con- contributing to the low-carb community and, and really oh. improving, improving health. I think that's really something you both should be proud of. So thank well, you for that. Thank you. Thank you for nice your time today. You're very welcome. It's been really enjoyable talking to you both. Wish you were here and we had a sitting over my kitchen table. Next time. Lovely. (laughs) Next time. Next time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. So, Jackie, what a great love story. But I'm on everything else. I mean, it's a great health journey, but, you know, it's like layers upon layers of, you know, like a good flaky pastry the love story, the health journey, and just gentle reminders about food quality, food sourcing, as well as just general lifestyle um, things that we need to think about, about resetting. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was great that they they did that month with the family. And and I think, you know, we mentioned it in the podcast, but it's worth re-mentioning that, you know, it's not just about the food. It's everything around your lifestyle. So they were talking about, you know, being in Italy and they were working hard. Um, there was lots of sunshine. Lots of one thing we didn't mention is lots of movement. So you're you're on the go all day and you're moving. You're not sitting at a desk or even like me standing at a desk. Um you're moving all the time and then there was there was no screens in those days we didn't you know you're lucky if you had a tv and you know the low light in the evening play the community all that I think it's we think it's about the food but it's not just the food it's the stress and the sleep and the that plays into the whole lifestyle yeah you picked up on the stress 
the movement, the sunlight, I think let's just sort of go back to those social connections, the, you know, being connected as a community. So not just, you know, individuals, but, you know, that's that community relationship is a really powerful way of reducing stress. Yeah. Um, and as you said, you know, engaging conversation, as you said, you know, we're not all stuck on with our noses to our phones and our iPads and those sorts of things. But um, yeah, just the, for me, as you said, the stress, the movement, the sunlight, the social connections, as well as the food. And, you know, and that food, as you said, it's important because the Mediterranean diet or the lifestyle that comes with that particular diet, fresh, seasonal, local. And that sort of resonates with what Gary Fetke was, you know, reminding us on, on when we interviewed him. Plenty of meat and fish and you know, she was saying how her father-in-law used to make the wine and so, you know, all these things that they wouldn't have been very commercialised but they would have been nu- nutrient-dense foods. Mm. Yeah, and that, again, the social activities of, say, you know, the annual um, sausage-making, you know, or, you know, where, where they prepare the metwurst and salamis to be to be hung for the year and dried and cured, that's a social a social engagement. And, you know, we do lots of social stuff as we're coming into the holiday season. But, you know, it's a sh- the shared making, creating of the food. That's all part of that, as well as the actual sort of sitting and dining and, and gathering the food. And that's, that sort of is a very powerful memory of making the Christmas pud, you know, with my grandma. And um, that was usually around like late October, early November, and that would be the pud would sort of sit in the pudding, the, the cake. Yeah. Um, so it would sit in the in the shed, um, in the garage, um, to be cured, um, you know, for, for the month preceding Christmas. It was an old-fashioned sort of fruit pudding and um, not not keto, not low-carb. No. But, <laughs> but, um, that dried fruit. Or the dried fruit, but it was boiled and um, and then hung hung in the shed for in a one yard of a calico, a linen and linen cloth, and um, yeah, I did try and make it a couple of times, but nowhere near as um, delicious as my as my grandmother's. So um, yeah, um, never is really, is it? No, but the memory, but the memories, but, and that's really what what she was sort of saying that wanting to create a memory of this is, you know, this traditional life and walking, you know, walking through that to, to experience experience that that lifestyle. Yeah. Must have been a great experience for her boys. I was out walking this week with, or last weekend, with Geraint Hove from last week's podcast. And we were talking about um, if you needed to go and hunt your food and then mm. clean it up and butcher it and all those things and we were we were saying you know where where would we find food i mean there are deer around here um but where would you find the food firstly and then who knows how to 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 start skinning it and doing all those things um you know i could probably butcher the meat because i i have done that in the past i used to cut up cows um when i was working in the kitchen but actually taking the skin off and all those sorts of things i can't imagine doing that i 
No, that's a hard no for me. Um, I, I, I was I was saying to you about those carnival groups that I'm part of, and you know, there's a lot of discussion, and you do see those images of people, you know, that are hunters. So whether they they shoot or they use a bow, bow and arrow, which is you know that that that's great, but for for me, I am probably a little bit too. I'm cognizant of my food sources and that sort of stuff, but I, I'm I'm happy to delegate that sort of the sourcing and the preparation and the dressing of the food um, to that. I know where they come from, um, but I don't need to to go out and collect it myself. So no, thank you. But it was interesting because my grandfather had chickens in the backyard, and it to conceptualise that those chickens that you know perhaps the old boiler layers and those sorts of things and the turkey at Christmas he would always source a live turkey but um but my grandfather was very much a primary producer of food so was my grandmother so she you know they grew the fruit trees and preserves and conserves but they grew up through the or came through the depression you know the 1930s and stuff so they were very clever in food production Mm. like growing their own food and producing their own food but um um no yeah i'm happy for my 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 chicken and pork and beef to be prepared lamb for prepared for me mm. i don't mind catching a fish i'll catch fish that's easy i can do that okay you i'll collect the eggs you might become a pescatarian <laughs> mind you mm. if you want to collect the eggs you might have to have the chickens yeah yeah anyway i'll, I'll get too attached to them so i'll give them names yeah <laughs> But that's okay. But you know, that's that's really we're just reminded of the food quality, the food sources, how our food arrives in it, and to be fresh, seasonal, and local. Yeah, absolutely. And just a reminder to the listeners that Katie would like some feedback. So get in touch with her on her social media or through her website. Yeah. So she was really happy to to hear about the feedback. And um, as we mentioned in the show notes. Uh, so she lists her five low carb, the first of her five low low carb books, um, and now you know as an Amazon bestseller. So her latest book is the Low Carb Italian. She has an ebook for Christmas, so with gluten free low carb recipes. But you know, by no like mean effort, those sort of things. So she's written twelve other cookbooks. So um, yeah, prolific content producer and you know one that's happy to to have um to feedback and talking of production jackie has the journal going yeah not bad how is it going for you what do you well you're keeping me yeah well you're keeping me on track so thank you the journal is a great uh accountability and as the listeners will know that i do need to be held accountable as an obliger an external tool like um jackie's Fabulously Keto Journal is a great tool to keep me on track with my daily um, daily entries and reflections. Um, but in terms of, I think the keeping the habit, and as we know about those habits, to to do that. So having something daily, whether it's diary entries uh, for the food, water intake, exercise, and logs. Um, yeah, it's a, just another great device, and I find writing better than. Uh, putting it into an app, actually. Yeah. I'm a, definitely a kinesthetic person. I need to have a visual, draw me a picture. Yeah. Colour, colouring any little avocados. 
and we're just um getting it ready but we've got a digital version but you do need um an ipad with a pencil so you still have to write on it so you still uh-huh. have to write in the journal but it is electronic but that's um probably come around around um christmas time so in time for the new year just to remind the listeners um and that's through amazon right through amazon but we're also going to have it on our website for those people in the uk who want to order it directly from us um the digital version will only be on the website so it's all coming together oh awesome and that's a really great a really perhaps a really great christmas gift from someone yeah yeah it would be and the link you know so the link to amazon is also in the show notes if somebody just wants to click on a link it'll be in the show notes well that's a good reminder jackie where can our listeners get the show notes for this episode so the show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 117. Great. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.